The Nobel Prize for Economics was announced earlier this week on the 10th of October. You might have seen the headlines saying it was awarded to the former US Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, and indeed it was. But he shared the prize jointly with two others, Philip Dibvig and our guest now on Sunday Extra, Douglas Diamond. The short form of their joint Nobel Prize commendation says the prize was awarded for research on banks and financial crises, which the Nobel Committee said reduces the risk that financial crises will develop into long-term depressions. Now, that might sound pretty abstract, but do you remember when Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said this in 2008? Many Australians have become concerned, anxious and even fearful as to the future. The truth is that we are going through the worst financial crisis in our lifetime. That's why the government took decisive action on Sunday to guarantee all depositors and all deposits in all Australian banks, building societies and credit unions for the next three years. That decision to guarantee all Australian bank deposits, your money and mine, in the global financial crisis was the result of the research that Douglas Diamond did with Philip Dibvig in the 1980s. So if you ever meet Douglas in person, buy him a beer. I certainly will. But for now, all we can do is say Douglas Diamond, Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and 2022 Nobel Laureate in Economics, welcome to RN and congratulations. Thank you very much. Douglas, this year's three-way Nobel Prize has been traced back to two essays that were published in 1983, one by you and Philip Divvig and the other by Ben Bernanke, both about the Great Depression. What were those essays about and why were they significant? So my work, the 83 paper with Phil Divvig, is a theoretical paper designed to figure out the logic of why the financial system, banks in particular, set themselves up in a way that leaves them subject to bank runs that are caused by self-fulfilling prophecies of bank failure, sort of the fear of fear itself. So we had a theory, which meant an internally consistent story to see why you would ever voluntarily set it up so this bad stuff could happen hmm. occasionally, sometimes. Ben Bernanke, his paper was looking at actual data, ours is a theoretical paper, his is empirical, actual data on what happened during the Great Depression as more and more and more banks failed. So you were really analysing what had happened at a theoretical level and at a practical level in the Great Depression and the run on banks, which was reminiscent, I think, of the, of the fears that uh, we heard Kevin Rudd talking about earlier. How did you come to the conclusion that insurance by governments of bank deposits was the best way to avoid catastrophic runs on banks? Basically, our view was to come up with a hopefully practical and certainly internally consistent story on why banks write contracts that leave them subject to runs only mm. if people lose faith. So if you just do the private sector by itself, the private sector can create liquid assets like bank deposits, checking account deposits, demand deposits, out of illiquid assets, think bank loans backed by plant and equipment of companies, and as long as everybody is confident that that system works well, it does work well. The trouble is that system, which is sometimes good, if people lose faith in it, if they panic, everybody wants to get out ahead of everybody else and the system very rapidly melts down. 
So the point we were making is that a financial panic, a crisis, is something that very quickly switches from sort of normal times to a huge rush for the exits that is bad for everybody. So why does that say deposit insurance is good? The reason that the government has to step in is that somebody needs to be able to cover all of the potential losses if everybody panicked and pulled their money out. If that's happened to an entire banking system, there's nobody left in the private sector to bail it out. But if the government steps in and just says in advance, even if everybody else pulls their money out of the banking system, you, Mr. or Ms. Depositor, will still do fine, just that guarantee stops the run or the panic from occurring in the first place. So there's a special role for government because the government has deep pockets in providing a guarantee that the private sector could not. So that's an unusual role for the government. Sometimes the government is good for redistribution and fairness or thinking about externalities like air pollution. This is saying because the government has a deep pocket, they are in a special position to provide this guarantee. And why do they have that deep pocket? Douglas? Because they can pick other people's pockets. What does that mean? (laughs) Because the government has the right to tax people, sales tax, income tax, or the government has the right to impose, I hate to say it these days, an inflation tax. So if they needed to, if they didn't want to raise income taxes to cover bank deposit, they could always just print up some new Australian dollars for, for the bank to hand out. And that guarantees that there's no special reason to get out ahead of everybody else. If there's no other reason except the panic for the bank to fail, just having the right of the government to pick our pockets means that the run never occurs, and lo and behold, they never need to pick our pockets. So that is almost what economists call a free lunch. I thought there wasn't such a thing. Right. Milton Friedman said there's no such thing as a free lunch. But here there is a free lunch because if the government can back up the deposits and guarantee that no one panics, then you actually never need to use that backup. That's the good news. The bad news is that banks fail for other reasons sometimes. <laughs> Indeed. Depressions, fraud. Then you have to pay for your lunch there in that case, because then when the government bails them out, they're actually losing money and having to raise taxes. We certainly saw that in the U.S. after the savings and loan associations failed early in the George H.W. Bush administration. And we certainly saw that after the great financial crisis in 2008 and nine. On Sunday Extra, we are speaking with Nobel Laureate in Economics, Professor Douglas Diamond. And Douglas, you described your essay as a a theoretical work, but I was interested to read that you and your collaborator, Phil Dibvig, were definitely trying to write the paper in a way that it could be picked up by central bankers and actually applied in a crisis. Is that right? That's right. So if we wrote it so that only economic theorists could understand it, the people who needed to know wouldn't know. So we worked extra hard both on making the analysis simple and worked extra hard on the wordsmithing, the prose, to make it so you could read every idea in there without looking at a single equation. And Phil Dibvig, my co-author on that, is, is an amazingly good writer. So it became something that any central banker today would know inside out. In fact, this is even taught in undergraduate economics courses now. This is fairly sophisticated stuff because it's game theory to teach to undergraduate economists, but our model is pretty simple. Could you tell us a little bit more about how your work went from the theoretical to becoming, as you've described, conventional economic wisdom? 
widely accepted enough that it does get implemented in very short turnarounds in moments of crisis? One was the clear exposition. Two, we did the standard thing of going around and presenting it. Normally, you go around and present it only in economics and business schools. We also made a big point of going out to the central bankers mm. and presenting it at various central banks around the world. Once it started to catch on, it was kind of word of mouth among central bankers that this was the way to think about it. And then a number of people during the 2008-9 crisis basically said they went back and reread it. Even Ben Bernanke said he went back and reread it. And the other thing is during the crisis, I actually got involved in helping the governments, the U.S. Treasury. I was at a little session that the Federal Reserve Board had when Ben Bernanke was the chair. And in fact, those of us who were there to, to make this presentation had to wait. We had to stay in the halls of the Federal Reserve for four hours because the Federal Reserve was voting on bailing out Wachovia Bank. So we were sitting there waiting to talk to them about a financial crisis when the board was voting on actually resolving a big bank failure. Wow. And then all of the, the governors were like very tired after that. So several of the governors sort of left after that and didn't listen to our talk. But one very important governor sat around and listened to this seminar, this talk, Ben Bernanke. It's amazing to hear those parallels between the essays back in 1983 and then in 2008, you're all there really dealing with the real situation in real time. What difference do you think it made, Douglas Diamond, to have Ben Bernanke as chair of the US Federal Reserve right at the time when this scenario that you'd all written about academically was happening? So I've said several times in public, I think this helped save the world from a huge depression because Ben was an expert of not just financial economics, but monetary economics. So when they started thinking about cutting interest rates to zero and doing you know, quantitative easing, he knew the panic stuff. He knew that. He was like one of the only two or three people in the world with those sets of, of skills. And then he had tremendous guts. If I had his job, I'm not sure I would have had the guts to do everything in terms of the various programs he put in. But they were certainly the right thing. So we were so lucky. I mean, another outstanding central banker was Alan Greenspan, but he wasn't a financial crisis guy. I think if we'd had Alan Greenspan, probably the, the response would not have been as good. And that affected not just the U.S. economy, but the whole world economy. Because if the U.S. had melted down, it would have affected even you and Australia. Of course, yes. Australia did it right. And as I recall, Australia did okay in the later stages of the crisis. They didn't, they didn't get as much blowback as, as some other countries. But apart from, from governments like Greece, there are only two types of governments, those that have deposit insurance and those that introduce it during a crisis. The Australians introduced it during a crisis. The Americans increased insurance. So we had 100000 and we raised it up to $250,000 insurance. And for checking accounts, demand deposits, during the crisis, they raised it to infinity. Mm -mm. So no, it's really interesting uh, because um, when I was reading the, the commendation for the Nobel, it, it actually sort of brought back to me quite vividly that moment in 2008 and what a, what a psychological difference it did make hearing that, you know, the money that you had in the bank was actually guaranteed. So it, kind yeah. of, it was like a visceral affirmation of the theory. And it made me wonder, you know what's going on in Lebanon at the moment where the banks are refusing to release money and, the, and you know, there are sort of armed holdups of people yeah. trying to get access to their own money. 
Is yeah. that related to whether or not the government is guaranteeing deposits? It is. There's two ways to stop a run. Don't let them do it and bail everybody out. So the good one is to bail everybody out because once you're locked up in there, once your money's locked up in there, you can't spend it. It's an awful thing. Mm. So the threat, when you just threat, threaten, if there's a panic run, I'm going to not let anybody take their money out. That stops the run from occurring in the first place. But as I mentioned, there are runs for other reasons besides just panics, losses, fraud, etc. So then when you do the suspension, it just makes people very, very unhappy. Well, there you go. Douglas Diamond, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you on Sunday Extra. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on being a Nobel Laureate in Economics. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. That's Douglas Diamond, a Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and one of the joint winners of the 2022 Nobel Prize for Economics. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.